0: Hebrews 9, Hebrews chapter 9, we've got a pretty interesting passage, I think, because it deals with something that every single one of us deals with. Um, the difficulty is, no matter, no matter what happened this morning, it was going to be hard to crash right into it, um, because really what our passage is dealing with this morning is this thing that every single one of us wrestles with at one time or another, this guilty conscience. I know, none of you walked in here with a guilty conscience this morning, right? Right? I mean, we, we all str- wrestle and struggle with guilt because, and the reason is this: because guilt isn't just the way you feel. Guilt is actually who you are, all right? And so we'll talk about that as we go, but, but Hebrews 9 is going to talk about that, but he's, he's, the author is going to do it a little differently for us, which is it, actually going to be kind of interesting. So you're going to need to pay attention because some of y'all are still going to need to stand up and sit down a few more times. I'll explain as I go, okay? I want to give you a visual representation of what's happening. So look at Hebrews 9. Let me start reading the first five verses and we'll jump in there. Now, the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up. And in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Now, behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the gold altar of incense and the ark of the covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, the cherubim of glory. We're above the ark overshadowing the mercy seat. Man, it is, it is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. Now, I probably should pay attention to that last phrase. But as a preacher, you ignore things like that. Because the, the author says it's not possible. We don't have the time to talk about this. Oh, we're taking the time. We were absolutely taking that part of it is because, and I'll do it very general, but you need to understand. I need to get you to understand what picture is being painted here. So he starts talking about the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was this portable uh, worship venue for the Israelites in the Old Testament. It actually was always centered um, in the camp. And so there were specific instructions where what tribe was supposed to camp and north, south, east, and west. And this the tabernacle would be centered right in the middle. And there was, there was this. This, this image, So let, let me go, uh, um, I don't have my remote up. Can you throw the picture of the tabernacle up there for me? There we go. So that's, that's a real rough idea of it, but it'll, it'll give you some of an idea. Now, the tabernacle in our estimation, because we're American, I think is most of the problem. The secondary problem is we're 2000 plus years removed from it is not as big as you would expect it to be. So let me, let me give you an image, a visual image of how big the tabernacle was. So this is what I'm gonna need. I'm going to need, on this side here, everybody who is sitting on the row all the way back, if you would stand up, this whole section stand up. Go ahead, you can do it, I promise. This whole section stand up. This whole section stand up. And then everybody who is on the row in this section, if you would stand up. This is all you stand up. Go ahead. Just out of here. Isles, row seat, just on the row, just on the row. If you're on the row right here, stand up. Okay. Okay. Aisle. sorry, aisle row It gets me in Microsoft Excel as well. Now, (laughs) that's the width of the outer courtyard. That's it. 75 feet wide. And it's 150 feet deep. That means you go to about the conference room in the office. From this front row to the conference room in the office. Not that big, is it? Okay, so so you can all have a seat. There'll be more. This is like, I'm not ripping on Catholics, but it's kind of like Catholic mass. Okay. All right, cool. You get to go and you get a little exercise with your worship. It's pretty nice. Okay. So here the, the courtyard was surrounded by those white linen walls. Here's the amazing thing. 75 feet wide by 150 feet long. And those walls were only seven and a half feet tall. Now you couldn't peer over them unless you were Goliath, but, but, but you could kind of stand at a distance and look and, and be able to see into it. And as you walked into the courtyard what you would see is is a couple of things. You see these tables along the side? Those are called, you know, in a very romantic term, slaughter tables. There you go. Uh, They had the big, um, 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 yep, offering. Uh, Just lost it completely. White linen walls, end of the gate. Uh, What's it called? Altar, thank you. Wow. (laughs) That's not good. I'm like, there's nothing coming. (laughs) All right, well, I know when stuff. enough. Let's pray and go home. This is this over? Um, all right, so the altar the altar, and then you got the, the brazen laver. It was made of bronze, and so that was filled with water. And so what happened is all the sacrifices of Israel would happen here. And on that, that altar, you can see kind of the four pointy parts at the top. Those are horns, not like hurk, hurk, horns, but like animal horns. And, and it would help you affix your sacrifice to that altar if you needed to. And then the brazen altar, after every time the priests would give an offering, or if they went into the tent of meeting, which we'll talk about in a minute, they had to wash both their hands uh, and, and their, their feet. Now, while the... the, 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 the um, the outer court walls were only seven and a half feet tall. The the tent of meeting, or the tabernacle proper, is that building in the middle, and that was 15 feet tall. Which meant no matter where you were in the camp, you could see over the courtyard walls, and you'd be able to see the tabernacle from wherever you were. So the tabernacle was 15 feet wide and 45 feet long. Now you remember how big the courtyard is. Here we go. I need all of you here in the middle section. Back to the Ritters, row three or aisle three or whatever that thing is back there. So Blacksons, you stand up. Everybody up here, you all stand up right here in this middle section. And the Ritter row, yep, and Evangelist, I think you're in that row too. You guys stand up. Okay, that's how big the tabernacle was. That crazy? I mean, in your mind, it's some monstrosity. It's this big, huge thing. And he walks through and says, in the outer room, you would walk in and you would find these different things. You'd find the lamp. You can sit down, Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> make you stand the whole time. You're bad Catholics. Um, so uh, the lampstand, the lampstand was made of solid gold. It had seven different lamps. The priests who worked in the, the holy place, which is which I'll talk about in a second, um, had to make sure those lamps never went out. Day and night, always lighting the, the, the flame, making sure that flame had the fuel that it needed to continue going on. It was supposed to remind them of God's continued presence with them. And then there was the, the, the table of showbread was also in that area. The table of showbread had 12 loaves of bread that were placed on it every week. There, now, in a lot of different religions, you bring food to offer to your gods. That's not what this was. This was supposed to be a visual representation to the people of Israel, how God had continued to provide for them Then you had the altar of incense, which was right up against the Holy Holies. That that big altar of incense had the coals inside of it and the the priests would throw incense on it and the smoke, the fragrant smoke would rise. And that would be a picture of our prayers ascending to the presence of God. Now in, in the tabernacle, it was divided into two spaces. There was a veil. You know about this veil in the New Testament after Jesus was crucified. This veil hung, it was four inches thick. It was made of crimson, purple, uh, blue, had real gold woven through it. It had embroidered on it the picture of, of God's holy cherubim. Now, behind it is the Holy of Holies. Now, how big is the Holy of Holies? I'm glad you asked. I'm gonna need the first five rows. If you would stand up. All right there, so one, two, three, four, five. There you go, there you go, there you go. There you go. That's how big the Holy of Holies is. That's it. Bad news, you're in the Holy of Holies. You're all dead. So thanks for coming. You can have a seat. Um, <laughs> that's the Holy of Holies. So, so in your mind's eye now, when you hear about the tabernacle, when you read about the tabernacle, now you have a better understanding of this is not some huge monstrosity. This is, this is some very finessed, specific, small, even area that God said, it's there you'll be able to worship me. In the holy of holies was the ark. The ark of the covenant that was covered with gold and inside of it was the, uh, the, 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 um, the rod of Aaron. Inside of it was the, uh, a copy of the, the um, tablets for the law. Uh, inside of it was a pot that had manna inside of it to remind them of how God had been present with them throughout their history. On top of the ark was, was this Well, I'll start with this, the two golden cherubim who had their wings touching and their eyes were facing down towards the cover of the ark, which was solid gold, and that was called the mercy seat. And on that mercy seat is where God dwelt when he dwelt with his people. And there's some crazy stuff going on there, isn't there? So let's keep going. Look at verse 6. With these things prepared like this, the priests enter the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people and committed in ignorance. So this picture here shows the tabernacle split into two pieces. That front piece, the holy place, Week by week, priests would do their service there. They would do their, their duties there. They would do their sacrifices there. What I found interesting is that um, every week, they would draw lots to see which priests got to serve inside of that holy place. Now, they all were allowed in the courtyard, but into that holy place. So, so they would draw lots and it would like thrill them. It'd be like when you were a kid and you got to clap out the erasers, right? See, I'm talking to my age demographic now, kids. Or you got to go and get the cartons of milk for your class. It's like, this this is the greatest honor ever. I am the line leader, right? (laughs) These priests got to go in and they were the ones who were then responsible to keep the lamp lit. They were the ones who were responsible to throw incense on the altar of incense. They're the ones responsible on the table of showbread to replace those 12 loaves of bread each week, just once. And when they brought in the fresh bread, the priests working in the holy place got to eat the other bread. I don't know that that's a feature. It's week old bread that's been sitting out. But every job has the stuff you don't like to do. The priest would repeatedly enter that first room. Sacrifices, the smoke of sacrifices rising up day after day after day. But as our text tells us, not one of them dared glance behind that veil because that wasn't for them. Only one could go there and he would only go there one day a year and he would never walk in without blood. Here is the the, the Mishnah, which is a collection of traditions as they kind of pertain to the Exodus Levitical law for the people. Tell us that the high priest, leading up to that one day a year, he was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. The week leading up to the Day of Atonement, or they call it Yom Kippur. The week leading up to that, the high priest would be taken from his home and he would live in absolute solitude just to make sure that nobody could possibly make him unclean. Throughout that week, he, he would wash his body in a ceremonial way. He would prepare his heart. He would offer prayers. He would study the scripture. In fact, it got so crazy that they actually rehearsed everything. When I say everything, I mean they rehearsed everything. Even, this is hilarious, the leaders would bring different bulls and different goats in front of the high priest to make sure he could distinguish between a bull and a goat. I mean, come on, How insulting. But that's how seriously they took this. There is no way we can get this wrong. The night before Yom Kippur, the pre- high priest wouldn't sleep, said he'd study scripture and pray. He'd wake up that morning and the day would begin like any other day. He'd be wearing his high priestly uh, robes. He would, he would go and offer the morning sacrifice, a burnt offering of a, of a one-year-old lamb. When that was done though, he would go take off his ceremonial Robes, bathe, and dress in white from top to toe. Every garment he put on was pristine, clean, without blemish or mark. A bull was brought to him. He would sacrifice it. And now he would need to get into the Holy of Holies, the place where nobody can step into because it's considered the very presence of God right there. He would need to get into the Holy of Holies to take some of the blood of the bull he just sacrificed and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, sprinkle it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. But, but before he could do that, he would stand at its entrance where that altar of incense is. And he would, he would throw enough incense into the hot coals that smoke would rise so that when he entered into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, he wouldn't be able to mistakenly see the glory of God because if he saw the glory of God, he'd die. Think beekeeper. You want to go get some of that honey? You go in with the smoke, right? And smoke those things out so they don't zap you. Similarly, the high priest had to create a veil of smoke so that he couldn't see God's presence. He took some of the blood of that bull. He'd sprinkle it uh, on the mercy seat. He would come back outside. There were two goats. Lots were then cast over these two goats to determine which one would be the sacrifice and which one would be driven away as the scapegoat for the sins of Israel. When, when the scapegoat was determined, he took a red thread and he tied it around the, the, the goat so that way they would understand which one was the scapegoat and which one wasn't. The goat that was meant for slaughter and for sacrifice would be sacrifices. He would then take the blood of that goat back into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle that in on the mercy seat as well. Then he would come back out again. The second goat is there. He would, in a ceremonial way, he would put his hand on the head of the goat. And I I find it interesting. It isn't just like, okay, I'm just gonna touch your head. No, no. he would force the head of the goat down. So that way it seemed like it was in in submission. It would seem as if it, it was in a state of repentance and he would confess all the sins of the people of Israel over this goat. And when he was done, a person was chosen from among Israel to take the goat into the wilderness, which is a picture of the theological term expiation which means our sins have been carried away. He'd go back into the tent of meeting. He would uh, remove his, his white linen garments. He would wash again. He'd put on his normal priestly garments. He would make more offerings for himself, for the priests, for his family, for the people. They would clean up. And as the day came to a close, he would finally head home and, and, and tradition tells us he would enjoy a absolute banger of a meal. And the whole time this is happening, the people of Israel would gather as close as they could. Every time the high priest moved from station to station, there were times of silence. There were times of weeping, times of Repentance times of celebration. We're, we're told that when this is all done, most of the older Israelites went home, but the young people went out to the vineyards and had themselves a good old party. In a nutshell, that's the old covenant. That's the tabernacle in all of its glory as it's worship in its entirety. And there's absolutely nothing like it. Think about the pomp. Think about the, just the, the, the amazing celebrations that would happen. And it's very specific. It's very focused. It, it, it's very orchestrated. And every mark had to be hit. The, the, the high priest had bells on the bottom of his robe so that when he entered into the Holy of Holies, the people could hear him still moving around. Tradition has it that if the bells stopped, they knew what happened to him. And so another tradition is that they tied a rope to his ankle so that the bells stopped. They're like, bring in the boys and that they yank them out. That's how seriously they took this. They knew how serious the day of atonement was. And yet, look at verse nine. Yet all of this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. These are just physical regulations. They only deal with food and drink and various washings imposed until the time of of this new order. No matter how perfectly they hit their marks, none of this could clear the conscience of the people. So their guilt remained. Guilt is the right verdict, the right conviction for us, This isn't news to any of us that are honest. We're all sinners. Every single one of us has fallen short of what we owe our creator, God. We are far from perfect day in and day out. We have replaced God or tried to replace God with so many different things that that the declaration of guilt over us is simply an observation that there is a gaping hole between who we ought to be and who we are. The ceremonies and the sacrifices, the traditions, the rituals, all those things. They only deal with the physical. They only deal with the external things. So they may clean up the outside, but they can't possibly fix the inside. You know how I know? Because next year, they've got to do a day of atonement again. And the next year, they've got to do the day of atonement again. And the next year, and the next year, and the next year. Um, some of you did walk in here this morning carrying guilt. Some of you walked in here carrying a lot of guilt. And what you've decided is that you're going to try to turn over a new leaf to fix the thing that is making you feel guilty. And so, hear this in love you show up at church. Because 2024 is going to be different. You sing, you pray. You give. You might even come here and shed a tear on a Sunday morning. Even having done all of those things, chances are good that you're going to walk out of here feeling just as guilty as when you walked in. That's exactly what our author is saying. Freedom from guilt, a cleared conscience, a new start doesn't come from bringing bulls and goats And I know, I didn't see any of you roll up with a goat in your backyard back seat, so thank you. Um, But our bulls and goats just look a little different. I swear I'll never do it again. I promise, God, I promise, I'm I'm gonna be better. I'm gonna go to church. I'm not quite to the 10% tithe thing, so how about seven? I'm I'm gonna serve wherever I can serve. I'm gonna be nice to the little old lady next door who's mean to me. I'm going to change all of these outside things. And while those things are all fine and good, the author says they're just going to keep changing the outside. To get rid of guilt, something has to change from the inside. Because guilt is a reflection of the reality of your sin. You don't just feel guilty. You are guilty. And many of us try to ignore it. A lot of us uh, try to silence it. Most of us try to numb it somehow. That looks like a lot of different things. It could be self-medication. It could be overworking. It could be just having that Messiah complex where you've got to fix everybody's problems. But I'm here to tell you, there is absolutely zero freedom in any of those things because you remain guilty. The good news isn't that you can fix the outside and feel better. The good news is that God provided an answer for your guilt. Look at verse 11. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of his creation, he entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. He entered, not one time, not with the blood of an animal, but with his own blood. You know what this does, Right? as as our author points to the the, the tabernacle that's not made with earthly hands, our author is saying this, Jesus Christ is the greater tabernacle. What? Let me walk you through it. You know that that wonderful lampstand that's there that's got the seven lights on? When Jesus stood in front of the people and said, listen, I am the light of the world, he is fulfilling the tabernacle lampstand. He also stood before the people and said, I am the bread of life, the table of showbread even better. And we're going to talk about this in the weeks to come because it's in Hebrews 10. He is the veil that no longer separates us from the presence of God, but instead he is the veil that enables us to enter into the presence of God through his flesh. You know why? Because he's the great high priest and he's the perfect sacrifice. And he's he's obtained for every single one of us who would put our faith and trust in him, eternal redemption. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled would sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? He says, if you think those sacrifices were beneficial for the outside, how much more? How much more effective is the blood of Christ for what we truly need? Listen, there are people sitting here who need to hear the call to repentance. And the call to repentance is this. There is one who came and he shed his blood. He gave his life for you so that your sin can be forgiven, not because you earned it, but because Jesus paid the price of your sin debt. And like that scapegoat, he's carried your sin away if you trust him. If you come to him, not with goats, not with lambs, not with bulls, but if you come to him with a broken and humbled spirit. Christian, believer. You carry your guilt too. It kind of works like this. I'll use my own specific situation. It's usually at night, when I'm trying to fall asleep. It's like the speaker gets cranked up in my head and the accuser, the enemy, just starts just pelting me. Man, you are a loser. You call yourself a pastor? Man, you, you, did you even pay attention to what you read in the scripture today? How often did you pray today? Man, you, you spoke to them in a horrible way. You, you are a terrible husband. You know you've messed up this time. And if I'm not careful, and if you're not careful, as the accuser brings those accusations, which here's the crazy part, the accusations are based on truth. Yes, I did speak to that person in a horrible way. Yes, I was not a great husband today. Yes, I got distracted when I was reading scripture and didn't actually pay attention. Yeah, all of those things are true. And the accuser saying, see, you are guilty. And so your normal response is, okay, give me a goat. Give me a bull. I'm gonna do better tomorrow. I'm going to make her coffee. I'm going to do breakfast. I'm I'm going to pray more. I'm going to open up my Bible and I'm just going to have notes all over the place. I I no matter what, I'm going to treat people with kind. I'm going to I'm going to And you know what I'm doing? I'm running to the tabernacle. The tabernacle is ineffective at providing a clean conscience. If there's a point to the message and I hope there is, <laughs> it's this. <laughs> you can't find a clean conscience in what you try to give to him but in what he already purchased for you. You can't find a clean conscience in what you try to give to him but in what he already purchased For you, So so it looks like this. The accuser comes to me in the middle of the night. He's like, you know how much of a disappointment you are. You realize how little you obey. You you know that that people know that you're not a great pastor. You know this, this, this. And they know what my response is supposed to be. Not, I'll do better. No, 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 no. That's tabernacle. No, no, no. Understanding what's been purchased for me is this. You're right. I'm a loser. Thank God Jesus came for losers like me. Thank God that Jesus willingly laid on the cross for me. It's it's not my holiness, it's not my victory, it's not my overcoming like I got this all figured out. I don't. It's his. True clear conscience freedom comes from understanding what he already purchased for you. And what that leads to? When you truly understand what he purchased for you is being so incredibly overwhelmed with what he's done for you? that the externals start to change. I want to close our time together a little different. This morning's been pretty different, um, but I want to close it a little different as well. Um, I'm going to ask Jeremy to come, and I'm going to ask that just in, a few, in the next few moments, you would just spend reflecting on what the Spirit might be pointing out in your heart today. What guilt do you need erased? What freedom do you need to find in Christ. And so in the next couple of moments, I'm just gonna ask that you pray where you are. Thank him for what he's done and ask him to do more. That you pray?